this up as I go. What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Do you want to do a breathing exercise? <laughs> Eventually, yeah. Okay. I could I could do grounding <clears throat> exercise like I do in my meditation groups. Oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening, for sharing, for your comments. It means a lot. I see them and I really appreciate it. And with me today is Emma Weisfeld Adams. She's the founder and owner of Beautiful Life, Beautiful Death. And Emma, thank you. Good to meet you. Thank you. Yeah. It's nice to meet you in person. Yeah. So tell me about the business, Beautiful Life, Beautiful Death. What is it? Where did it come from? Well, um, I founded Beautiful Life, Beautiful Death as a business only pretty recently, I guess about a year ago, but I've been doing work um, focused on supporting people in end-of-life experiences um, for the last couple of years. I, I did... Um, a training as a death doula back in 2019. Okay. So, do you want me? Do you, do you want me to define death doula? I feel like people explain it to me like I'm a five year old. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I mean I hadn't heard about. I mean, if you had asked me, you know, two years before I did my death doula course, I would never have heard of a death doula myself. So I don't think it's like very common knowledge, but. I've heard the word, mm -hmm. right? It's mostly associated with, is it pregnancy? So yeah, doula, like birth doula is 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 a pretty common position role. I think most people know what it is. Um, and there's definitely like a lot of similarities, but obviously it's on the other end of things. But um, so a death doula is um, someone who... <clears throat> tries to support people in having a comfortable, meaningful end-of-life experience. Whatever. Death. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's sort of premised, I think, on the idea that um, like birth, death um, ha can, can have a miraculousness to it and a beauty to it, and um, that they're can be a place for someone who is not necessarily focused on medical, but can maybe offer that go-between between the medical community and the family and the person who's dying just to facilitate whatever that person's wishes are, whatever that person's um, vision for comfort, for meaning, for completion. Um, so they're like a frontline caregiver typically. So I did a training as a death doula, as I said, a few years ago, but I ended up um, especially focusing on uh, a piece of it, which is holistic end-of-life planning. So a lot of my work that I do now, although I do work directly with people in end-of-life circumstances providing direct support and direct care, I do a lot of um, helping people create holistic end of life plans. So this is not <clears throat> anything like on the legal side of things. You're not doing wills and stuff like that. You're doing, so when you say like a holistic experience, take me through that. Okay. So <clears throat> you're right that uh, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to draw the line. I, I, either, yes, absolutely. So most people, when they think of planning for end of life, they exactly, they think about okay. creating a will or they may even think about um, advanced directives, you know, um, living wills, those kinds of things. And those are extremely important um, documents. They're extremely 
important areas of decision making, but they encompass a pretty narrow range of choices. Um, with a will, you know, matters of your estate, your your finances, um, and with advanced directives and living will, just a pretty narrow range of specific circumstances uh, regarding medical decision making. Got it. But with holistic end of life planning, what essentially I'm inviting people to ask themselves is what do they need in order to die peacefully, comfortably, and with a sense of completion? So it's more of a, I guess, philosophical approach to this. Um, I mean, there's pieces of it that are very philosophical, but there are pieces of it that are very, very practical. Um, I mean, what what it means to die peacefully, comfortably and with a sense of completion, it means very different things for different people. But, um, you know, we get into a number of different domains, including um, practical decisions like, you know, where do you physically want to be at the end of your life? Sure. You know, where do you want to be located? How do you want to be cared for? By whom? You know, what kinds of um, <clears throat> roles do you want the people in your life to have? Or what roles do you want professionals to take on? What kinds of things make you comfortable? What kinds of business do you need to take care of? Not just like the major decisions of your estate, but are there things that are bothering you about your practical affairs that need to be wrapped up, you know, before you die for you to feel calm and comfortable and ready. Um, I mean, obviously it gets into like emotional life and relationships. It gets into people, you know, reconciling their sense of spirituality with um, their death and their end of life. Um, For a lot of people, a lot of planning goes into mitigating um, fears they have around the dying process. So, you know, circumstances that seem really unacceptable, you know, fears around frailty, around dependence, um, loneliness, being in pain, you know, you, you can actually kind of unpack all of those and come up with practical solutions that kind of soften some of the hardest edges of people's fears around the dying process. So when I do a holistic plan with someone, it's like very, very detailed. It's a very extensive process and you really get into the weeds of a lot of different areas. So you're a death coach as opposed to a life coach. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's not, that's not an uncommon term actually for people like in the death doula community. Some people do prefer that term. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely another way to look at it. Except for that, I think of myself mostly as a facilitator rather than a coach. Of course, um, sometimes I, you know, I, I try to be as informed as possible and advise people to consider things. But primarily, it's about um, providing support and space for people to come up with their own blueprint of what a good death looks like to them. Maybe that's what a life coach does do. I don't know. I don't know. They're probably focused yeah. on um, the alive part of things. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, the thing is, like, a lot, a lot of this does have to do with with your with your life, like how you live, but how you're living at the end. And also, I mean, <clears throat> I I I think it's important to look at death kind of wherever you are in your life because. Um, confronting mortality and acknowledging uh, the inevitability of our death, I think, does affect how we live every day. So regardless of age or health status, I think it's a worthwhile pursuit. Well, it's top of mind for me on the, and I use the word coach intentionally because I've been listening to some podcasts by the guy who wrote uh, Moneyball, Michael Lewis. Mm -hmm. He's got this podcast called against the rules and he's talking about coaching and society and what it means to be a coach. And then he's on the performance side of things. But I brought that up because when you talked about having a, a, a peaceful death and I would say being able to focus on it, 
that's what a performance coach does. So you're free of distractions if you're going to go hit a golf ball or a baseball or shoot a free throw. <clears throat> you're getting all that out of your head so you can focus on what's most important. And if you're at the end of your life, then I think by definition, your death is the most important thing to focus on. So I can see it from, again, trying to tie that all together. It makes a ton of sense, right? That you'd want to experience this in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the one... It's really one of the, maybe the only thing that we can possibly be sure will definitely <laughs> oh, yeah. happen. Right. So there is a certain basic logic, although that logic does, isn't really reflected in our culture. There is a certain basic logic in like, well, maybe I should think about what this means to me and what it will mean to me to have that experience and what kind of experience I want to have since I'm definitely going to have some kind of end of life experience. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's just a lot of fear, a lot of death denial in our culture and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of discouragement for people to want to, like, think, talk, look at it. So I've noticed that, too. And um, I think it's partially just because of events that have transpired in my life, not only <clears throat> recently, but I lost my mom when I was 20. So that was sort of my first exposure to, I would say, mortality for sure, but also mine. And yeah, I saw like I had friends. It was all so disconnected, like third, fourth orbit that that happened. And then reading about the Stoics and things like that and thinking about but embracing the impermanence, not from like a morbid sensibility or afraid of it but like hey this is going to happen and then but like you're saying about being uncomfortable with it like i've had conversations with people about yeah i gotta like figure this out or figure that i'm like your life is already over i don't know if you know this or not <laughs> like get going you know um but then talking about even just the word there's some people that are kind of like oh they like you know <laughs> yeah warding off the evil spirits or thinking that you're going to invoke it. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people who don't <clears throat> consider themselves superstitious and in any way have a lot of unconscious superstitions about kind of manifesting a premature death if they talk about it. And I, I mean, I even experienced it myself, like in my own, um, life you know and I I kind of came to this work because of my own personal experiences of people close to me dying and and watching my own resistance and my own you know um <clears throat> the the most probably although I had a few profound um experiences with death but the the death that definitely altered my trajectory on this path was the death of my husband. How long who, ago was that? Four years ago. He died four years ago. And it was like a whole, you know, long cancer situation. And he was a very practical person, like in medicine, and knew the statistics of his illness. And he wouldn't have known anything about a death doula. You know, it wasn't, he didn't have the sort of spiritual side of it that I definitely have been drawn towards, but he was just like, hey, this is probably going to happen. So we should probably like figure some stuff out. And I mean, I remember feeling, feeling at the time like, guy, like, you know, you're just, you're being negative. <laughs> like, you know, like have a positive attitude. So you're pushing and back on that. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I was like, look, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, you know, let, you know, we, we just got to stay positive. And, and it wasn't just me. I mean, he confronted that in amongst any other members of his family and, um, his community overall, even and as much as she was a very caring and dedicated oncologist, even his own 
physician who I think truly, truly wanted him to do as well as possible. And I think she did her best work. But even even with her, there was a lot of reluctance to talk about the inevitability of death, the likelihood that at some point these treatments were going to fail. Like, how are we going to, you know, when were we going to decide it was mm. time to stop treating them? I mean, there's just there's just so many forces um, nudging everyone to, like, look away, not talk about it, pretend it's not happening. Um, but, of course, the... <laughs> You know, we all kind of know it's it's there and not talking about it um, doesn't prevent it from happening. So luckily, my husband was a very persistent, tenacious, <laughs> assertive, sometimes aggressive, not, not, but just like he, you know, he wore me down essentially and um, kind of forced me to share in the reality that he was living. And because of that, we did have a lot of conversations. We did make plans. We discussed our finances. We talked about what he wanted um, in terms of our children because we have uh, we had a young child. When he was diagnosed, I was pregnant with my second child. We had a young mm-hmm. child. We... <clears throat> had the kinds of conversations that you want to have had with someone when they've died, you know, the, the, you, you say the things that you want to have said when you are together in a shared reality of the impermanence. Do you recall one of the more powerful ones that you had shared? Well, (laughs) yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, obviously like, you know, I, I was able to um, kind of share my grief with him. I was able to share my love for him. That I feel really grateful that I had those kinds of conversations. But I'll tell you, the, the truly the most one of the most like powerful um, moments for me in terms of my own reckoning with the reality of his death was this was probably maybe. Less than a year before he died, but it was like it, it was clear he, he was sick for about three years, and the last year was rough. Like it was just clear things were not going well. You know, the treat he was just having a lot of health crises, and um, you know things things were just on a downward spiral. And I remember having this conversation in bed one night where. I don't I I can't recall exactly what was said, but it was like that moment where I was like, okay, yeah, this is going to happen. He's this is really going to happen. Like this is this is like this is going that way and it's probably going to be pretty soon. And it it hit me, you know, like a ton of bricks, like suddenly the reality of the situation washed over me and you know I, I kind of like we like cried together about it really for the first time throughout his whole illness what I what I remember most vividly actually was you know the reality that he was gonna die and probably you know pretty soon um we were laying in bed he kind of fell asleep and within I don't know, within half an hour, 45 minutes of having recognized that he was going to die. I just remember he fell asleep and I sat there and the realization of my own mortality hit me. Also, in a way, like I had never truly been hit before uh, because, you know, this guy can can die like you know, I probably like like that's probably true. Like I probably can die too. Like it's it's true. Like like I know people have been saying it, but like I didn't really like think really. But now I just feel like it really is going to really happen. I swear it was like this cold feeling of like fear and dread of the reality of my own death. Um, <clears throat> you know, was like assimilated. So as as intense and fearful and and kind of dark as that moment was for me, it was really uh, pivotal. I think I think you know it's it's part of grief of uh, in general, you know, of other people is recognizing the reality of death overall, right? Your own death being the most significant to most people. So. Um, 
and as much as I, as I said, it was a scary, uh, intense, like dark, painful, sorrowful moment where I grieved my own inevitable death. I think it was the most important moment of my life because in that recognition of impermanence, uh, I feel like I was really able to start living in the way that I was supposed to or living in a way that really was more meaningful and more authentic for me and living more presently than I would have if I had not had that epiphany that I was going to die. That is true. <laughs> the the mm-hmm. most powerful word out of that was live presently. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and would you say that understanding and coming to reckoning that you are going to die, did it put everything else in the proper perspective for you? Like little things. Yeah, there's actually research that demonstrates that people who contemplate their death tend to live with more joy, with more peace, uh, with less focus on daily hassles. Um, and absolutely, I think, you know, the through line, I, I, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my business, I do end of life planning and support. I also teach meditation. And the through line of those pieces of work is absolutely presence. You know, meditation certainly is a, a practice, like, you know, practicing the skill set, learning how to be more present or how to uh, <clears throat> exercise your attention in a way that you're able to be present. But also, I mean, recognizing that any moment, truly any moment might be your last does have a way of making you appreciate the present moment. I mean, you know, taking a drink of water or taking a shower is a pretty banal event. But if you um, knew it might be your last and honestly, any drink of water, any shower might be your last, you truly don't know you might find that you savor the feeling of the water on your skin or just the, the your thirst being quenched or whatever it is that you're experiencing in that moment if it was the last time you were experiencing. And it might be. <laughs> you know, you might be a little Truly. more there for it. Truly. Yeah. It's, it's affected my consumption of, I would say, media. Mm particularly <clears throat> books, movies, music, things like that, because uh, like all due respect to say, I'll just pick an album that I love, like Pearl Jam 10, right? Mm-hmm. The very first one. Love that album, right? But at some point, I'm going to run out of minutes for something new. And so it's not that I'm um, that I've shut down any sentimentality or things like that. Like around Christmas, like I watch the same movies, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the tradition. But outside of those traditions, I'm focusing on what's new, what's unique, what's a different experience I can have because, man, at some point, it's going to be the last Netflix documentary I watch, right? And just as a case in point, I never watched this show as a kid, Sanford and Son. It's way too old for me. You've probably never even heard of it. Of course I have. <laughs> okay. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, <laughs> what do you think I am? <laughs> so I saw it on uh, Amazon, like all these mm-hmm. episodes. I was like, I don't think I ever. So I, I watched like four minutes of this. And I was like, no. Like it just, for me, it didn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was like, why would I go back and watch like Friends or Cheers or something like that? Mm-hmm. I'm getting way off topic here. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, yeah, I've pondered that and it's made me. Again, trying to cope with attention issues and focus, but also like, yeah, be here now. Easier said than done. So true. (laughs) I mean, I'm not a naturally very present person. All of my um, my, all of my skill set and awareness of where my attention is and training it to be more present were very hard one and still require from me a lot of vigilance because I definitely was like a very in my head neurotic weirdo you know for pretty much <laughs> my whole life until 
you know, my 30s, my mid 30s, I think was when I, you know, early mid 30s when I first started having any inkling of, um, you know, perspective on a relationship with my thoughts that uh, didn't just I where I, I where I, I maybe I'm maybe I'm speaking like in too obtuse the way but you know I I think I, I just identified with my ego um, mm. I didn't really have any perspective on my ego until pretty recently in my life I think I had pretty precious oh I was I was, <laughs> for most I was of my perfect life. yeah <laughs> Well, I was like, you know, um, what are they? I think is, I don't know if this is like an AA expression piece of the center of the universe. <laughs> that was that was more of me. It wasn't that I thought I was perfect. It was that I was like, you know, I was the worst. But it was like a very narcissistic oh. self-flagellation that was like more my jam, you know. <laughs> but you know, I, the the form of egotism that's right for you, of course. <laughs> was there anything that you and your husband shared that was sort of like? Honey, I've always hated that casserole. Like, <laughs> is there anything that sort of uh, amusing that came out that it's like I've been meaning to tell you this for years, but <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he had a few weird, like a few kind of hilarious w- requests <laughs> that were <laughs> very detailed. Some of which I've adhered to, some of which I was like, you know, like what? what? I don't know. Like my son, like got a like haircut and he was like that his that looks like usually like when i'm dead like keep his hair like that it's <laughs> like i don't think i can you know he's gonna <laughs> i don't know if i can agree to this wish <laughs> um yeah no i don't you know that we went through a lot of different phases throughout his illness you know it, it was very hard for him to find out i guess he must have been you know, 35. Oh, wow. 36 when he was diagnosed, with, like terminal illness. So, you know, we went through some really rocky times, but I would say that, <clears throat> you know, there were ups and downs. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of grief. There was a lot of trying to control things, you know, when everything else felt so out of control. But, uh, there was also a lot of appreciation and gratitude, and I mean, I think he showed a pretty astounding um, grasp on what was happening and and desire to take care of his family, of me and the kids, and to do everything he could to make sure that we were going to be okay, and even to the extent that um i remember like he was this was like right at the very this was weeks before he died i mean he was really in bad shape um and it was late march because he died he died in april anniversary of his death death just happened recently um and he was like we gotta like do our taxes (laughs) i was like what i don't want to do our taxes (laughs) like what no (laughs) And he, like, made us, like, in literally what was ended up probably being one of his final days, like, do our taxes. (laughs) He spent one of his final days on this planet dealing with our freaking taxes, which at the time was like, well, this is not, like, what I want to be doing right now. But after he died, I thought, like, oh, whatever. It was just, it seemed like actually such a romantic gesture to me in retrospect. It's like, you know, he didn't want me to have to, like, deal with our taxes right after he died. <laughs> so sure. he was like, let's just knock knock him out, uh, you know, together. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I, mean, I, <clears throat> I work with people um, who are elderly and very sick, who are in absolute denial you know who really cannot um hear anything about their impending death so i mean to me it's very was very impressive and definitely like shaped the the course of my life you know and obviously what i'm doing now did you ever get mad at your husband throughout all this oh yeah i was mad at him like a lot of the time Well, it's a hard to live with a sick person, you know, and I was mad at the situation and then he was just like there, you know, available for me to be mad at, you know. So, um, yeah, it, you know, it's it's something that I think is an inevitable part of 
I mean, this is a separate subject of cohabitation. <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I it's it, it's just it's very painful and very difficult, you know, to 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 live with another person, but certainly to live sure. with another person through like a very debilitating, painful illness where, you know, your expectations of what you kind of envision for a marriage are not being met. And of course it isn't that person's fault, but it can be very difficult to let go of those expectations. And that's another reason why I, um, I'm one of those annoying meditation people that advises meditation for everything because letting go of expectations and not attaching to expectations, I think is really important. Oh, for sure. Happiness and enjoyment in life. Oh yeah, I learned uh, four or five years ago that the, the that your misery is the difference between your expectation and reality, or your lack of happiness, mm-hmm. or however you want to frame the first part of that. But yeah, absolutely. Would you feel comfortable talking about the moment where your husband actually died when that happened and those feelings? I would be comfortable, but I'm actually going to. Um answer a, a different similar question Perfect. which is <laughs> i i the i was with my husband at the moment of his death and i'm happy to tell you about that but actually <clears throat> years before that at this point 11 years ago um i was with my dad oh. at the moment of his death and that was my first big death um he he also died of cancer, but it was a much shorter illness. He was diagnosed, and then he was dead within four months or something. It's kind of like what happened to my mom. It was almost like over the summer. It's yeah. like three or four months. Yeah. So, I mean, and that also that experience um, compared to my husband's death, you know, where there wasn't a lot of talking about it, there was kind of, quote, unquote, positive thinking you know, fighting the cancer and and not wanting to <clears throat> um, sit with the possibility that he was going to die. So things got very chaotic. There wasn't a lot of, there was no advanced decision making. But in any case, um, I was with my dad at the moment of his death. In fact, my whole immediate family was there. He was in hospice at home and had been in hospice at home for just a couple of days and he had been unconscious, like pretty well sedated for some period of time. It's a, a little bit of a blur to me now, maybe a day or two days. And he started um, breathing in a pretty kind of uh, a, a, a way that is typical for people right at the end of their life, you know, kind of a lot of gasping for breath um and i think the hospice nurse may have indicated like hey like this is it's all you know happening and he's probably you know about to die and we kind of gathered around him at this point in my life i really didn't i probably would have identified as an atheist i think didn't really have like much of a spiritual um belief system i didn't really i don't know i didn't really think about that but i remember watching his face as he took his last breaths and the moment there it's very very hard to describe and I I often refer to it as like there was like a poetry to this to this moment because it's um it it doesn't really apply to kind of rational description but there was a moment where I just knew like he had left his body and even though his his body was not completely motionless yet it was still kind of compacting with like the the completion I guess of the last breath but it was like that expression like the light going out of someone's eyes really spoke to what I felt like I saw it was just there was no question at the moment that he was in his body and then the moment he was just not in his body anymore. And it was really powerful to me. And I didn't really ha- I didn't know what to do with that or how to explain it. But um, it just I sat with that, I think, for years because 
I didn't, I didn't really, I just didn't know what to do with it. You know, I just, I didn't really have a belief system. I didn't have any kind of sense of um, the afterlife or any sort of sense of awareness continuing after our physical form. Um, But that was a, it was a very profound moment. And when my husband died, I was also with him. Um, and he died also at home. He was in a hospice at home for a while. He'd also like he died in our bedroom in our bed. And it was um, it's very surreal. I don't know if you were with if you've ever been with anyone. Were you with your mother um, when she like died? Or? Two minutes after they yeah. were doing some resuscitation, and then was like immediately after so i was in the room adjacent yeah yeah i think no matter how much you prepare seeing the body of someone who you knew as an alive animated Mm -hmm. person there is something about seeing that shell that is it is it is a uh, it really communicates their death in a way that like news can't cuz i've known other people that have died you know that i've been told like they died and there is a non-reality to it but when you see someone's dead body like you you just know they're not there anymore they's not in their body like they're dead it, it, it so it sounds a little like obvious but I, I I bring it up because um I think there's a lot of um there's a lot of reluctance and not a lot of support or invitations for people to spend time with the bodies of their loved ones after they've died and I think that there's a lot of value in doing that in terms of processing what's happened and Accepting the fact that they're dead and um, honoring, getting the opportunity to honor the body, to honor the vessel that the person yeah. is in. And- I still remember it uh, vividly because I was 19 or 20, I think, <clears throat> and walked into the uh, the ER, OR, whatever it was, and she was in a gown. And I just remember um, her eyes were closed. I remember picking up her right hand and holding it and it was cold, which was an amazing, um, sensation, which I've never experienced before. And, you know, to your point about, um, that it is obvious though, right? Like you could see somebody sleeping that's close. You can see a picture of somebody sleeping that's closer cause they're not moving again, but to experience the, rawness and literalness of somebody that's dead you don't really get that opportunity outside of i would say like armed forces or ems or police or something like that right or medical you're not really going to be around a body that much and yeah it was just i remember like the her hand didn't move there was just nothing to it and it was sort of like Oh, am I gonna wake her up or something? You know, and even at twenty, like yeah. it just was um, surreal. Is probably the most perfect word for that. Yeah, people don't get a lot of exposure to death. Uh, there's a lot of ushering it out of our homes and out of our lives, and you know, it's medicalized um, in most circumstances. And again, there's not a lot of invitations for people. In our culture, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, old school rituals or where we wash the bodies or do other kinds of sure. um, engagement with the bodies of our dead loved ones. So, yeah, most people don't don't really get that. So you were you were a completely different person between the death of your dad and the death of your husband. So as you look at those two events being there and you, you've talked a lot about just facing it in the conversations you've had seems like they're almost polar opposites right because the family your family didn't seem like they talked about it it was sudden and you had a lot of time with your husband to go through it were there were you aware that the 
that you were different in that moment and processing it differently? Um, well, <clears throat> I was somewhat, but I would say that the growth that I, um, the, the growth that happened throughout his illness was slow and, um, it, it was exponential towards the end. So I don't know that I felt like such a different person mm. when he was diagnosed. In fact, I felt very, like, I, I, I felt very, um, victimized by really? the diagnosis because, you know, I had had the experience with my dad who died also like right after I got pregnant with my first son and I felt very, I felt very um, deprived of him getting to meet his grandchildren. I felt very deprived of the family experience that I had wanted and had expected. And then my husband in our you know mid 30s is diagnosed with this illness where now all of our lives are going to be revolving around his health uh, i think still my ego was just like out of control you know i mean not that i was you know diabolical i did i truly did the best i could and i think i was you know, a decent like wife. And I, I did, I loved him and I tried to support him the best I could, but I felt really, um, I felt it was unfair because I was also now pregnant again. I found out I was pregnant with my second child, <laughs> uh, three days after he got his diagnosis there's like a funny story about that which i can't get into but anyways yes um, please <laughs> well the, the the funny story so he had actually had had a um uh how should I tell so so basically he he got his he got his diagnosis they, you know he was told he, he, what he was, was the illness uh renal cell carcinoma okay. so kidney cancer okay. so he's told they need to start treatment right away and the treatment is like, you know, d destroys sperm, basically. So like they just I think it's just part of the standards of care that they offer sperm banking. So we had been trying for a second child for like six months with really no nothing. So didn't have any reason to think that, um, you know, anything had happened. So he he had, uh, you know, he went to the place the bank make his deposit <laughs> and literally like, while he was there while he was in that appointment i got a call from my OBGYN, who i had been to like just days before for kind of a, a standard well women's checkup <laughs> um telling me that i was pregnant <laughs> no way and so yes yeah, so i called i was like no you don't have to <laughs> um but i yeah. want to <laughs> yeah anyways i caught him on the way out he already you know, he had banged up but yeah so i was like so he like got like in <laughs> just you know i i always like my metaphor is like you know like kind of uh, Bruce Willis like roll under the garage door like just as it's about to close like super sperm like just in the nick of time but in any case I was always pregnant and like he's sick and again I'm like again I, I'm half a pregnancy that's not like about me you know I wanted to be like the pregnant spoiled like sure. taken care of but you know I that wasn't gonna happen you know I had now had like I was pregnant had a young child a, four, a three year old sick husband so i was really you know i was pretty devastated for him but also for myself <laughs> you know i felt, felt very very sorry for myself for a very long time yeah. um and you know c c figuring out how not to um live in that kind of paradigm was was you know took took a lot from me you know and um i don't even think i you know 
<clears throat> I wouldn't have known how to do that at the time. Like just things happened that that kind of opened doors and. Um, but what a unique experience yeah. being in uh, the, the words are pale in comparison, but to have the experience of seeing death and life at the same time, creating life and watching death. Yeah, people would say that. And like I at the time, I didn't really like the beauty of the whole circle of life. Oh, thing. sure. <laughs> Was right. like lost on me in that you were moment, definitely but... <laughs> in the moment, right? In that moment, but actually, um, so that was also when I started meditating. That was my whole history of meditation because I was pregnant. Like life was just like clearly, you know, very stressful and only going to get more stressful. And like I couldn't even like drink or do drugs because I was pregnant. So I was like, I guess I'll just like meditate. I guess I've been hearing <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. You know, like it's supposed to be good for the stress. So I, that's when I started my meditation practice. So that's like that, that all and definitely like <clears throat> I don't I don't know. You know, I'd heard of meditation for years and kind of like tried it a time or two, but that was when I actually like committed to a meditation practice and kind of started to learn what it means to, um, you know, create a little distance between yourself and your thoughts, to sure. watch your thoughts, to watch your emotions, to be present. Um, so, yeah, all, all, all this kind of happened at the same time. So I don't want to hit like the big fast forward button here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, first, uh, thank you for sharing all those mm -hmm. very personal stories. But where did the 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 business side of this originate? Where did that happen? How long ago after your husband died was where did the idea mm -hmm. to help people through this come from? Okay, so I had this life-altering profound experience um with my husband's death i had this sense that i felt other people maybe weren't as often aware of that you know if you are willing to confront death if you're willing to like drag it out of the shadows and shine a bright spotlight on it that you can have a much more meaningful peaceful beautiful end of life experience um, and so that was kind of all in floating in the background. I'm just like processing all of this. And I went this one night, someone told, you know, they tell you to go to thing, you know, like there's like a young, there's like a young widow's support group. Someone told me to go to it. So I went to it and it really wasn't for, for me at the time, but I met this one person there. It was like really the only other young widow there who had been through like a long cancer thing mm -hmm. like I had. And he told me that, like, his wife had and he had used a death doula. And I had never heard of a death doula. And I just became obsessed and fascinated and started researching. And it just it just felt like, well, I have to, like, learn about this. Um, I... I felt completely compelled, and so I did this program um, at the Institute for Conscious Dying, Death Doula Certification, and it was probably less than a year after my husband died that I started the program, and then was working as a volunteer with hospice um, after I did my training. So I was just doing that for a while as a volunteer, just companioning with people dying people um and then COVID happened <laughs> and the in-person companionship program at the hospice like shut down and I didn't really know what oh, to do geez, yeah. <laughs> so I was like I did this um how to teach meditation course because I thought like well maybe this is something I can do with hospice patients you know over zoom this, you know, maybe just like the meditation is like I could do guided meditations with hospice patients is like something I could do. 
But then, so I did that course and then I told the hospice, like, you know, I can teach meditation. I, I have like this, pro, you know, I did this program. And then they were like, well, actually, can you like teach our, can you do like do a meditation program for our staff? Because they, I feel like they really need it. Oh, so then for I did sure. a, a meditation and mindfulness course for the hospice staff. And then they're like, I feel like we really need something in our bereavement program. And I had never thought of working with grief or bereavement, but it actually made a lot of sense considering my own relationship with death and grief and how meditation I feel like really helped me and was very important for me. So then I developed this grief and meditation program. Uh, for a while, we were doing it as um, courses, you know, like a four four week course. I've done that course also at some other locations, retirement communities. Um, but now I have just an ongoing meditation and grief group at the hospice. So and then, you know, things opened up and I also started doing more. Um, uh, that was another thing that came out of COVID was like doing the end of life planning piece felt more amenable to Zoom. And it was something I could do as a way I could support people in preparing for death and and thinking about death and um, in a more you know, virtual context, but I just like love it. And I think it's so important that it's now still like a cornerstone of my business. So yeah, I was doing all this as a volunteer, doing plans with friends, doing volunteering with the hospice. And then I just decided um, last year that it was time to open my business and expand my work. And that's what I'm doing. So how do you manage the emotional part of your job? Is there, are there ways that you can be empathetic, but you don't assume all the emotion that's going on around you? I think this is why I'm a freak, Matt, (laughs) because (laughs) I don't, I don't find it, you know, any job can be upsetting. Any, any day can, can have upset, right? And can have a roller, you know, a landscape of emotions, um, this job, if any, has been this work is far more uplifting than any that I have ever engaged in. Is that and your perspective? I mean, have you, has your perspective changed or is that just how it impacts you? Um, both. I, I think, you know, the beauty of my work is, you know, there's not... So especially when I'm working in person with someone in an end of life circumstance, someone coming to the end of their life, there isn't a script. There isn't a checklist of things I'm supposed to do. Really, my only job is to be as present as possible and to listen as attentively as possible and to trust that in that space of attention that my intuition will serve me. I I may, you know, in advance of a visit, set some intentions or think about like, you know, what might be supportive and helpful for someone. But once I'm there in that moment, I I really don't have to think about anything. I just need to be there. <laughs> With all, with all, with all of me that I can be, with all of my attention that I can bring. Well, and that's a that's flow state, right? Like whether I, I feel it on the bike sometimes, mm-hmm. but just being fully present wherever you're at is so rewarding. And yeah. I think you're helping people have a better experience. I, I'm I'm going out on a limb. It's not a big one, but you're not making it. Um, you're not removing all sadness and all emotion. You're making it slightly better and or a lot better. And that must be really rewarding. Well, it's really rewarding. And I definitely don't feel like it's my job to like remove sadness. You sure. know, I think grief is a part of the human experience and it's the other side of the coin to love. And there is no love without loss. And allowing yourself to grieve, allowing yourself to sit with intense emotions with other people who are grieving for themselves or for others is um, that's one of the a service that I try to provide. I <clears throat> you know, I, I'm often very moved by 
by my time that I spend with people, but it doesn't feel sad. I don't know how to describe it. It just doesn't feel depressing to me. You know, it feels like it's just part it's just part of what it is to be human. It's is to is to move through these motions. So yeah. No, I don't know. I, I guess I, I don't really know how to answer how I deal with the sadness of it because um, you know, how does I deal with it the same way I guess like any any, you know, we all have to deal with um life presenting yeah (laughs) presenting intense experiences and we all have our own kind of coping strategies and i have certainly my own techniques for dealing with intense emotions but but i don't find it to be i don't find this work to be like particularly upsetting or depressing or sad that's great yeah what does the uh day-to-day look like so what what is your first conversation with um do you call them patients? Are they clients? Or how do you define um, the people you work with? It, it really depends. So, <clears throat> if I'm doing planning with someone, they're 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 clients, I guess. Okay. So you, that um, first meeting, what are some of the questions that? What are some of the things you talk about in that first meeting? So if I'm doing a holistic, if I'm doing an end of life plan with somebody, it's a it's a very structured process. So it's um, a structured interview process that takes place over the course of usually. This can be customized depending on someone's needs, but usually it's two to three. um, You know, either in person or Zoom. You know, virtual. Mm interviews and in the very beginning um i start off with um a sort of death and i call it death and what i call death and quality of life uh interview where basically just i i ask a lot of questions to kind of elicit in a broad brush kind of way what their basic premises are, what their basic assumptions are, their their kind of greatest concerns around death and dying, their standards around what quality of life means for them, um, where, what their history is, what, you know, what kinds of in, influencing um, experiences, uh, childhood or more recent experience they've had that have affected how they look at death and dying. So we kind of, that's how we start off. And then we get into the planning pieces, like the planning domains. And there's it's like practical, um, phys- physical environment and practical stuff, emotional life and relationships, spiritual, religious, um, legacy. We do like a legacy and life review interview after death care, like plans for bodily disposition or memorials and um, – Oh, I just skipped one. We do like practical. Did I mention practical affairs? Like I you did people. previously. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. So anyway, so yeah, there's there's very kind of concrete um, planning we do in all those different domains. The idea is that someone is able to envision what a good death means to them in these different areas. And then actually we get into the weeds of like, all right, well, what do you need to do to make that happen? You don't want a family member to support you with bathing. Um, you want a professional, like what is your insurance cover? What, what are the activities you oh, okay. need to complete so that you know you can have this death that you want? Like, is it is it realistic? Like, I, I want people to come away at the end with a plan that has um, the possibility of being implemented. <clears throat> so we try to cover cover all the bases. You know, is there a conversation you need to have with this person in your life? You know, your sister? Do you feel like you have what you need to have that conversation? Are you resourced? Do you know how to start that conversation? Do you need support from someone else? Like, what do you need to make this conversation happen? We get very, very detailed, <laughs> um, which is why it's like a pretty in-depth process that takes a few sessions. I wonder, is is part of it mm-hmm. the removing a lot of this uncertainty? Because I think, at least for me, if I don't know what's going on, I don't, I don't think it's just confined to me, but the, the unknown breeds uncertainty, which can breed anxiety. And 
is a large part of this that they have some degree of control over what's going to happen. Do you think that helps? Yeah, I think absolutely it helps. You know, with control, I mean, of course, you know, like anything else, you know, you can do as much planning as you want. Like nothing (laughs) is going to go perfectly to plan. But there is a lot of space for autonomy and making choices if you're willing to actually figure it out what it is that you want. So, um, yeah, creating the set and setting for your end of life. Like, yeah, I think I think it is very empowering for people. I think it calms a lot of anxiety around um, death and dying and the existential distress that we all live with. You know, I think it can if you have a vision of your death that does feel beautiful to you, it can it can be very comforting, quiet down some of that existential distress. <laughs> so, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And um, I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast, but Learned Optimism mm-hmm. by Martin Seligman. He talks about um, even the illusion of choice helps with people's outlooks. So that there's always a decision you could make, no matter how small it is, right? So as you were talking about that, as taking me back to that book in a life side of things, but that, yeah, if you can plan these things out and face them and like, what happens here? What happens here? That that makes a ton of sense that it would eliminate or reduce that uncertainty which then would reduce the anxiety yeah i mean even if look i i you know you do a really you know comprehensive holistic end of life plan but you know it's not to say you don't just get hit by a bus a week later right so then what was the point of the plan okay i'm gonna answer that question and i'm gonna say the preparation's <laughs> never wasted i'll for say that week yeah your ability to live presently because you have um, attended to some of these like grumbling fears around like the possibilities of death and dying and sickness and indignities or whatever we got into in the plan. You've addressed those for yourself. So you're able to live that last week before you ended up getting hit by the bus and didn't really do the plan. You know, you were able to live it that last week more fully than you would have otherwise. <laughs> That's the pitch anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just because you didn't mm-hmm. just because you didn't need the parachute yeah. in the airplane doesn't mean that packing it was a waste of time. Yeah, and maybe you had that conversation with your sister, you know, that you needed to have. Maybe that was the piece of the plan that you took care of in advance because that happens a lot when we do end of life planning. I mean, certain pieces of it only kind of come into play once the person is actively dying. But what ends up happening is issues that need resolution arise, you know, and it becomes clear, like, I just need to have a conversation with my sister. Like, I just need to. And okay, so we tackle it. Well, when are you going to do that? Do you want to wait until you're dying or is that something you want to do? You know, yeah. next week, next month, like should we set a date for it? You know, that kind of stuff goes into people's plans frequently. My biggest takeaway from this conversation, apart from your energy, which I absolutely love, is that you don't have to wait till you're faced with dying to live in the moment and do all these things. Like the concept of a bucket list, like you're dying anyway. Might as well get started. With whatever it is. Yes, friend. <laughs> Live like you're dying. I don't think that's my tagline. <laughs> but um, it could be. <laughs> it could be because, yeah, truly none of us is guaranteed any amount of time. And it's hard to believe that. You know, we kind of know it's true. It's hard to believe it. But I do try and remind myself. I think it's a great <laughs> way to start the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and I would love to do a part two and actually uh, I'm going to on my shelf over there, the denial of death, go through that. And then perhaps there could be uh, a follow up where talk about specific questions that I would have and go through this. Like I'd, I'd even hire you for an hour to do that, but that would be fascinating for me to go through and talk about these questions and these things and 
and get um, not necessarily like a, a working session, but get more specific and personal on these things. That, that would be something I'd be fascinated to do. Well, I'm available. Matt, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. So yeah, please feel free to contact me. Um, either Where can people find you, Emma? So beautifullifebeautifuldeath.com. Uh, you can, it's, it's, it is kind of a long I'll post name, this. You don't but, need to read it out. Uh, my I'll... email is emma at beautifullifebeautifuldeath.com. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's my website. That's how you can reach me. Um, for questions, comments, you can look at my services, read more about death and meditation on my site. It's been great. Thank you. And you don't need to be dying to live in the moment, everybody. Damn straight people. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks, Matt. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple, Transistor, or Spotify. And I know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest. And if you do, please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>